welcome to Linux Action News, episode 174, recorded on January 31st, 2021. I'm Chris. And I'm Wes. Hello, Wes. Let's do the news. And we start with Google suspending the Element app from the Play Store without notice to the team behind the Matrix chat client. Early on, the Element developers received a generic update from the Google Play policy team, citing that the app had been removed due to content which contravenes their terms of use. Not exactly clear. No. And within a short period of time, the Element developers submitted a detailed appeal to reiterate that Element is a generic chat app for connecting to a global matrix communication network. Just as Chrome is a generic web browser for connecting to the web, and Google does not control the content on the web, Element does not control the content on Matrix. You think Google might understand that? You would think. Back over on their blog, the Element team noted that to enforce our terms of use on the Matrix servers we run as the Element team behind Element, we have a formal trust and safety team hired full-time who are dedicated to investigating and tracking abuse reports. So I think I think that means they, they take these things seriously, even if perhaps they miss some, as happens time to time. I think one can't help but take in the context in which this is happening. Uh, applications are seeing huge growth in this area, ginormous growth right now. And there's also groups like the Wall Street Bets folks that are moving to platforms that are decentralized, that are uh, that have been targeted on platforms like Discord and are moving around. Uh, but the user base for Matrix and Element, a client for Matrix, has grown to include open source projects, nonprofit groups, uh, even governments. The German and French government authorities currently use Element to communicate as do parts of the U.S. and U.K. governments, if you can believe it. So this impact was felt beyond just the Wall Street bets folks or a few open source projects. It was felt pretty significantly. And I can't help but see Google's moves here as a bit sinister. Not only do they compete in the enterprise chat landscape... So they are essentially a competitor with Element, which makes this a little precarious. But one can't help but wonder if maybe the goal here was just a slow adoption of Element a bit. They've had a five-fold increase in user signups recently. And I recently read about a sysadmin at American Airlines who was in the process of testing Matrix and Element for internal use at American Airlines. And as they put it, quote, there are big players with clout that take issue to instability such as this. <laughs> he goes on to say, how can I rely on my company using Element when it gets pulled? Not cool, Google. It creates this doubt around this application, and it kind of creates a label. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you just can't imagine this happening with one of the more established platforms, and that makes it feel like Google didn't really take the time or is acting sort of ignorantly of what Element and Matrix is, even though the, you know, the folks at Google are highly technical, and I'm sure many of them have, have a deep understanding of these, which just adds more confusion. Yeah, indeed. Indeed. And it was sort of this non-communicado situation as well. It happens on a Friday, and then they just piss off for the weekend. Uh, and time goes by while this thing's just not in the App Store, more than 24 hours. Thankfully, we do have an update, though, after more than a day of nothing but silence from Google. The Element developers received a phone call from a Google VP who explained the suspension was triggered by a report of extremely abusive content accessible on the main matrix.org server. Element's trust and safety team had already acted on it before they even talked to Google, though. It does appear that Google Play Moderation Squad is now in contact with the matrix.org team. Hopefully that keeps communication lines open and keeps this from happening again. I, I can appreciate that that can be sometimes tricky, you know, just like it's often unfortunately difficult to report 
security vulnerabilities to the right place. Perhaps Google didn't know where to look, although I imagine it's not that hard to find. Well, and it's not clear to me uh, what an app store's role is in moderating a chat network like Matrix. Uh, it's it's never been the case that uh, email clients must be moderated for the types of emails that can be found on Gmail. IRC clients don't have these same restrictions put on them. Uh, Telegram, <laughs> Signal. I mean, the list goes on and on. So it's really kind of unclear why Element would be uh, abused here to begin with. Now, as of the morning of this recording, the app is back on the Play Store. But, you know, you said it, Wes, and I think it shows the fact that this escalated from a ticket where they tried to send more information in to silence until a VP calls out of the blue. I think that's significant. But I think the long-term damage has been done. Element has lost an unknown amount of users during an intense amount of sign-up time for them. But it's Google's reputation, I think, that's going to suffer the most long term because everybody's watching this situation really closely right now with what's going on with Wall Street bets and privacy. And this is a, this is a really, really closely watched situation. And Google did this in front of all of us, in front of all of us. We've been watching this happen, watching them delete bad reviews of the Robinhood app. And now we're watching them, Google the tech company that's supposedly smarter than any other with the most data in the world accidentally pulled down one of the communication tools with the most potential in our lifetime. I mean, Matrix is a powerful thing and Element's going to harness that. And I think ultimately that's what I love about this Wall Street Bets and GameStop story. The average non-techie people are learning about the control that platform owners like Google or YouTube have. And I think they're learning the value as a result of that, of open distributed systems. It's, it's like a lesson for the normies who, who couldn't care less about this stuff before. And I think this is a trend that will serve Linux well, because ultimately when you boil down, you want a platform under your control where people can't revoke applications or prevent you from trading or whatever it might be. It's going to be distributed and open source systems and a Linux desktop. And I think it's an interesting trend that ultimately will probably lead to more Linux users. You know, I think that's just right. I was feeling very grateful that, you know, Android has F-Droid in this instance, and hopefully some more folks found out about that. For a while, it, maybe it hadn't been an issue. We didn't have to care that there were only a couple of places to get these things, because for the most part, you could get whatever you want. Sure, they might go disappear occasionally. These days, that seems to be changing, and I'm glad that there are options like Linux and F-Droid where you can still find the applications that you want to use regardless of what Google or Apple thinks that you might want to run. Next up in security news, a now-fixed pseudo-vulnerability allowed any local user to gain root privileges on Linux and other Unix-like operating systems without requiring authentication. This is big news because what pseudo does is at the heart of system administration on many Linux distributions and Unix-based systems because, effectively, pseudo allows a user to run a program as another user, most commonly the root user. And anytime you're giving out root access, it's a big deal. This week, a serious heap-based buffer overflow was disclosed for sudo, and it's been given the name Baron Sameted by its discoverer. The bug can be leveraged to elevate privileges to root, even if you're not in the sudoer's file. And of course, as I mentioned, user authentication is not required to exploit the bug. The fruit hangs low. The vulnerability is tracked as CVE 2021-3156 and was discovered by security researchers from Qualys, who disclosed it on January 13th and did a good job this time making sure that patches were available before going public, which is quite important. The Baron same edit bug can be exploited by an attacker who has gained access to a low-privileged account, which is what makes this such a big deal and why we're talking about it now. 
And the CVE notes that a bug in the code that removes the escape characters will read beyond the last character of a string if it ends with an unescaped backslash character. Under normal circumstances, the bug would be harmless since pseudo has escaped all the backslashes in the command's arguments. However, due to a different bug, this time in the command line parsing code, it is possible to run pseudo edit with either the dash s or dash i options, setting a flag that indicates shell mode is enabled. Uh-oh. Because a command is not actually being run, pseudo does not escape special characters. Finally, a code that decides whether to remove the escape characters did not check whether a command is actually being run, just that the shell flag is set. This inconsistency is what makes the bug exploitable. Yeah, and making matters kind of worse here and more serious is this bug has a long tail. The vulnerability was introduced to pseudo almost nine years ago in July of 2011, and it essentially affects all default configurations of the stable version. Using these exploits, the researchers were able to obtain full root privileges on multiple Linux distributions, even current ones like Debian 10, Ubuntu 20.04, and Fedora 33. And like I said, it goes all the way back. It goes back nine years. So this is kind of a serious one that people are going to have to patch for. Yikes. (laughs) Though it only allows escalation of privilege and not remote code execution, which is important to point out, one could see how this could be leveraged in an attack. If botnet operators say brute force low-level service accounts, the vulnerability could be abused in the second stage of an attack to help intruders easily gain root access and then full control over a hacked server. Thankfully, the pseudo-contributors have fixed the vulnerability in version 1.9.5 patch 2, and this is one basically everyone needs to patch for. Yeah, special thank you to Bleeping Computer for their help in this reporting. We'll have a link to their write-up in the show notes. Linode.com slash LAN. Go there to receive a $100 60-day credit towards your new account, and you support the show. Linode is our cloud hosting provider. They make cloud computing simple, affordable, and accessible for anyone. Simplify your cloud infrastructure with Linode's Linux virtual machines and tools to make it all possible. Now, you know, we run all of our backend infrastructure for any of the new stuff we've built for JB 3.0 on Linode. But something I don't talk a lot about is how I personally use Linode. And I use Linode myself because, well, quite frankly, it costs 30 to 50% less than any other major cloud provider. So why wouldn't I? It's based on a company that founded a real passion for Linux and its technology that made it possible for virtual machines to even be a thing. They saw that back in 2003, before anybody else really was in the market, before it was even really called cloud computing. So I, I grok that because we've been following Linux's journey for about the same amount of time. But I also really like that they give me the tools to make it possible to do things that Get me going quick. Like, I, I set up a Rust server recently. No, not not that Rust. The game Rust, where you can have a persistent world online. And I want something my kids and their friends can play on that I know is safe. And they have a one-click deployment in their app marketplace. You set a cap for how many players are allowed and any of the other customizations you might want for the game server, all in the deployment screen. And then you hit deploy, and it's up and running. It's so slick. It's so quick. And now we have a place to hang out together online. Even when I'm on the road, I'll be able to play with my kids on our own Rust instance. And there's a lot of other applications, backend infrastructure, tools, other games that are just one click away in their app marketplace. So get started by going to Linode.com slash LAN. Get that $100 credit and then start deploying applications or your own bare servers and build it up on your own. But you get started at Linode.com slash LAN. That's linode.com slash land. A big thanks to Linode for sponsoring. 
Linux Action News. And thanks to everybody who supports this show and makes it possible for us to give it away for free by visiting linode.com slash LAN. An update on Rocky Linux this week. Parts of the puzzle to make that project sustainable have recently fallen into place. Gregory Kurtzer, co-founder of the CentOS Linux distribution, has founded a new startup called Control IQ, which will act as a sponsoring company for Rocky Linux. We should be clear here, though, that Rocky Linux is to be the beneficiary of Control IQ's revenue, not its source. Yeah, the company describes itself as suppliers of a full technology stack, integrating the key capabilities of enterprise, hyperscale, cloud computing, and high-performance computing. When you dig through their website, it, it seems like they have a particular focus on HPC deployments. But when asked by Jim Salter at Ars Technica about the relationship between Control IQ and Rocky Linux, a representative of Control IQ responded that Rocky was community-based and that Control IQ was supplying the initial capital for expenses, legal, and other startup costs. Yeah, really, uh, Control IQ is one of three current Tier 1 sponsors identified by the Rocky Linux project, along with Amazon Web Services and Mattermost. Rocky Linux is generally expected to be widely available in Q2 2021, with a first release candidate expected sometime at the end of March. Control IQ is an interesting company. You can see how their interests would align with a distribution like Rocky Linux, but it's early still. Nothing's really established. Where Cloud Linux has, uh, has, has, a, has an organization that's been doing this for years behind them. Sure, right. Yeah, they were already shipping their own sort of rel derivative, whereas I think at, at this point, you know, some of the work in the HPC sector and Gregory's work, they were consuming the old CentOS, so they're starting fresh. But with a lot of momentum. I mean, they're really getting things rolling and they're talking about their first release. And I, I think there is demand or appetite. I think there's a market for something like this, an enterprise distribution that's community driven. I, that's one of the things that I think people really like about Debian and why they deploy Debian on their servers is there's not a corporation that's going to mess around or meddle with things. It's a neutral, open organization. Yeah. I think that is appealing in itself, and that gives Rocky an edge. Plus, you know, Gregory being the original co-founder of CentOS, or CentOS, trying to remember to say CentOS, it, it matters, I think. Yeah, you know, it adds that, that flame from before and I think adds an air of credibility about the nature of it being community-based and driven. But on this one, only time will tell. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, I'm wondering, Chris, did you see that interesting article over at the Register this week, The Killing of CentOS, uh, where they had an interview with a CentOS board member who shared some interesting perspectives. Yeah, how could I not with a title like that? Uh, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. It's definitely worth a read. You know what, you know what jumped out at me about that article? Because it's nothing too new in there. But what the Register did is they did a really good job of demonstrating the duality of Red Hat's position with CentOS Stream. Uh, in there, they get they get the board member to clearly state that RHEL is for production. If you're running in production, you should be using RHEL. But then just a couple of paragraphs later, they get the same person to defend the Stream, say, no, Stream is for production. No, Stream's totally fine, it, you know, I guess for you. It just shows that this isn't a cohesive decision that's been made. And, and there's some... I think there's probably the most frank answers we've seen about any of this stuff are in some of their answers. That interview is linked in our show notes, linuxactionnews.com slash 174. Well, thinking long term, 
Linux kernel maintainer Greg Croa Hartman has responded to complaints that the current promise of two years of stability for the Linux kernel 5.10 release is not enough, explaining that support is not automatic but requires commercial help. Version 5.10 of the kernel was released back in December and designated a long-term maintenance release, which generally means six years of support with important bug fixes and security patches. That complaining came from Broadcom's Scott Brandon. He he spotted the release table and he had questions. He sent into the mailing list about the support lifecycle. I think that's what set all this off. Did you see that? Yeah, he wrote, The 510 LTS kernel being officially LTS supported for two years presents a problem. Why would anyone select a 510 kernel with two-year LTS when the 5.4 kernel has a six-year LTS? A two-year declaration is just not LTS anymore. Now, this is this is Greg's area, you see. So he's, he's not going to have this. First, uh, he refuted the idea that two years is not LTS. He says a normal stable kernel is dropped after the next release happens, making their lifespan about four months long. So two years is much longer than four months. <laughs> so thereby, it is a long-term supported kernel. Second, he said that every year they go through the same thing. The support is likely to be increased, but only after companies pledge to back it. He's got to see companies put in or else it's just not worth his time. He went on to explain that, I want to see companies using the kernel and most importantly, updating their devices with it to know if it is worth keeping around for longer than two years. I also, hopefully, want to see those companies will help me out in the testing and maintenance of that kernel version in order to make supporting it for six years actually possible. Greg also said that, uh, you know, Samsung could be a little bit better in this area. He basically said it. Uh, He added that he doesn't recommend using a single kernel version for more than two years on systems that you're going to actively support and maintain. And he blamed customer-unfriendly SOC vendors for providing millions of lines of -of out-of-tree code that is specific to one kernel. So the question is, will 5.10 get six years of LTS support? Well, Greg explained that so far the jury is still out for 5.10 and asked, are you willing to help me with this? If not, why are you willing to hope that others are going to do your work for you? I'm talking to some companies, but am not yet willing to commit to anything in public because no one has committed to me. Yeah, I think that's fair. Uh, And it's a tricky situation because everybody wants the benefits, but it doesn't seem like they particularly want to put the work in. And how can they really do this without vendors like Samsung and some of the other SOC manufacturers on board? When you think about it, this is a great deal of work. I mean, the rest of the kernel community in many ways has moved on to the next release, as you pointed out, right? It's there for four months and then you go on to the, the next release and work on that. Having to keep up, do all these backports, making sure those get done correctly, sometimes having to do significant changes when kernel structures have changed. That's not work that should be done for free. No, it really, it makes me realize that when uh, it's safe to go back out into public and we can go to community events again, it's all of our duty to buy Greg a beer when we see him or whatever beverage of his choice. Uh, you know, uh, this is, he is doing the people's work with these LTS kernels. And even to get something that's two years you know, a two-year stability window in terms of ABI and whatnot, that is a big, big deal. And if we could get it to six years by getting some vendors on board, I think that could have some some really positive ramifications for people that are building devices and, and new technology platforms off the Linux kernel. It also feels more natural in that, you know, we should do it if there's interest because folks need it and will use it. And we got to establish that first, and then you can justify the work. But the key takeaway is buy Greg a beer. 
Definitely. And of course, check out linuxactionnews.com slash subscribe for all the ways to get new episodes. And linuxactionnews.com slash contact for ways to get in touch. Hey, you can help us test. Join the Coder Happy Hour this Monday, 5 p.m. Pacific, 8 p.m. Eastern. We're going to test out our recently improved PeerTube live stream setup, and we could use your help. We need to build out a bit of the peer-to-peer network. So join me over there at jblive.tv, and we'll have more details. Help test the new revolution in video streaming. All you have to do is show up and watch. Don't worry, we'll be back next Monday with our weekly take on the latest Linux and open source news. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you right back here next week. <laughs>